Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I feel like I haven't been here in a while, and I think that's because I haven't been here in a while. It's been about a month. Uh, And in that month, we uh, have started to receive decisions. I say we, what I really mean is you, um, college seniors out there listening. um, You guys are getting your decisions. It's very exciting for those of you who applied to some early programs. And a little later in the show, we're going to be answering your admissions and college finance questions, and some of those may be related to some of those early decisions you're receiving. But uh, right now, we're going to be talking uh, about what happens if you get deferred. So last week, just in case anyone's listening and wondering just about the overall picture of early program decisions. Um, so last week we discussed how to prepare for early results. So I highly recommend going back and listening to that if you haven't heard it yet. Um, this week we are talking, as I said, specifically about handling a deferral. And I'm very excited to welcome my colleague, who is also a former admissions officer at both Holy Cross and Babson here today. Um, Kimberly, welcome to the show. Hi, Beth. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. And actually, I forgot to mention your last name. I don't know why. Kimberly Aselta, in case anyone's looking for you on our website. (laughs) Um, Madonna, Kimberly. Exactly. That's right. You really only require one name. (laughs) So, So I guess, you know, as we talk about deferrals, maybe the probably the most important thing to address right off the bat is what does a deferral mean? What does it mean to be deferred? I know. And that's a tough one, right? When you put all that work into your application and you're anxiously waiting for that answer to come in early and you get a defer and you sort of exactly think, like, what does that mean? I usually tell students, and this is what I would say at Holy Cross and Babson and the students that we work with now, that it's a little, it does feel a little bit neutral, but that the admission office liked you enough to have you stick around for the regular role, uh, regular decision, they just couldn't make a decision on you right now. So they want to hold off and see how your application stands up with the rest of the applicants in the regular decision pool. So it's hard to read in beyond that. Um, some people like to say, you know, well, my, is my chance better because I was deferred? Is my chance less? better because I was deferred. I don't know that you can really do that. Um, and it does depend on the school, but generally they liked you enough to keep you in the pool. And that's typically what I'll tell students. So that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and at Penn, we, we used to tell students that basically once you're in the regular decision pool, you have the same uh, chances of acceptance as anybody who's in the regular decision pool. And so while it would be and again, that's one example. The The reality is that um, deferred applicants uh, do go back into the regular decision applicant pool at most schools. Uh, I know that at Penn, we didn't consider deferred applicants in their own committee. They came up in committee along with all other students. Uh, so it was not, um, you know, it didn't accord you any special 
additional consideration because you were willing to make the early decision commitment. It just meant, okay, we're not ready to make a decision yet. And and that was right. really the long and short of it. Um, but what are your, what's your take when students and parents ask about, well, what are my chances of getting in? I mean, w- w- that was an example that I just gave of at Penn. We tried to, um, the students who were accepted had the same chance in regular as everybody else in regular. Uh, I think the other thing we really tried hard to do at Penn was to really cut the cord for students who weren't going to have a shot in regular. So to say no, uh, when we could in early. And I know that some families felt like that was not right. They would rather get a deferral. And mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. you know, I respectfully would disagree, especially since I've been doing this work. And I felt very strongly about this when I was at Penn, which is why does it feel good to get a deferral? It's really just stringing you along. If we know right. for sure that you're not getting in in regular, I think it's it's nicer to say no at that point. Um, curious what your experiences were where you have worked. Sure. I, and I agree. If, if you can make a decision, I think it, it's just helpful to just cut the cord. I agree. Um, at Babson, we definitely did that. We definitely tried to make a decision when we could. We had both early action and early decision. Um, mm-hmm. So we really tried to make those decisions when we could. At Holy Cross, we certainly denied out of early decision, but there was one group that we always offered a defer to, and that was alumni children. And we felt strongly that for our alumni children, for the, for the Holy Cross family, we would defer all applicants that we weren't going to take to make sure that they had every chance within the pool. So right. in some ways, that was certainly a nice offering to our Holy Cross families. Um, but again, there were certainly some students that I think an earlier answer would have at least had them um, able to get over that decision and yep. and kind of move on and reevaluate. So uh, while that was nice, I think you could probably argue the other side as well. Um, there are some schools out there that will defer everyone. If they're not going to admit them, they will defer everyone in the early rounds. So it is important as, as students and families to understand what those decisions might be coming from those mm-hmm. early schools. You know, is this a place that will defer everyone um, if they're not admitting them, or is this a place that will cut that cord and make the deny? Right. And, and of course, the tricky, the next question I'm sure that our listeners have is, well, how do you know? And the reality is that um, it's not generally easy to know because a lot of schools don't publish a lot of information about their early rounds. You will sometimes see uh, after decisions come out articles in the school newspaper. So if there's a particular school that you applied in the early round and there might be an article that shows up that kind of talks about the strength of the early class and how many acceptances and they may even talk about how many deferrals. So that's one place um, and you could just try a Google search and see what that turns up for you. I can tell you that anecdotally, I see Brown defer almost everyone in early decision if they don't accept them. And conversely, um, Stanford is very, very targeted in their deferrals. And um, they try really hard to deny anyone who's not going to have a chance and to defer a very small number. And they do, I mean, often their list of deferred applicants is under a thousand, which is a very, very small number considering how many are actually applying, how many they admit, and 
therefore how many they are denying in that early round. So, you know, at some schools, getting a deferral might be a good sign. At Stanford, it could really be a good sign, right? But Mm -hmm. at a place like Brown, maybe not. Same, and again, this is anecdotal, this next one. In Michigan, I've never had a student uh, denied in early. That doesn't mean they don't do it. have I. I've just (laughs) never seen it. And you haven't either. So that makes me think, hmm, they may not be. I think at a lot of schools with, um, I I seem to see it. And um, although it sounds like you did not do this at Holy Cross, but at Georgetown and Boston College, I don't see a whole lot of denies going on in their early round. It feels to me like they are. And I think at Georgetown, they actually say we defer everyone who we don't admit in the early action round into yes. the regular decision round. Yes. Um, so, all right, not to belabor the point, since we're not obviously touching on every college that's out there that offers early action, early decision, and priority, let's get down to more important stuff, which is um, how do you handle it? What can you do? So I guess, uh, what are your thoughts? You get the decision at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday. You get deferred you're picking up the the phone to call the admissions office. Is that something you would recommend? It, I would say put question. down that phone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Put down the phone, right? Sit on it for yep. a little bit. Uh, definitely sit on it. Uh, if you're getting it on a Thursday, perhaps you pick up that phone on Monday. Um, it is good to reach out. Um, I typically do tell students, which I know some students don't love to actually pick up the phone, but if you can get in touch with the person who read your application, not to ask questions about why you were deferred, but to ask what more, not really, what, not what more can I do, but sort of just getting your name on the top of that person's list, right? Mm-hmm. So when people would call me to ask, what can I do now? I'd say, why don't you update me every month, you know, every maybe four or five weeks about what's going on um, in this next semester, and, and I will add that to your application. So what I like to see was that a student after the deferral was still interested in my school. So that was really important when I went to look at your application again in the regular round, that it wasn't just empty, right? And that's sort of sending the message that we're over you, you we're, we've moved on. So I'd really like to see some information about maybe an upgrade, an update in an activity, maybe an award that you won, um, maybe an uh, update about a research project that you just worked really hard on and got a great grade. So reaching out to the person who read your application, if they'll give you that information, or just asking to speak to an admission officer that you have someone's contact information, you have that email address. Um, I would say email is probably better after you make that initial call to just update not aggressively, but a couple times in the, in that couple of months that they'll take to make those regular decision decisions. Sure. And then, so I would provide um, a, a similar but slightly revised perspective. And, and I do think picking up the phone is a good idea. I, I will say not everyone's going to take your call. So you need to be prepared for that. And I also think you should be prepared to leave your name and number and potentially get a call back. So at Penn, you would we would field the calls and the assistants would pull the files 
and so that you could have the file in front of you and then you would return the call. Um, parents, if you are tempted to make this call, really, really, really put down the phone. Don't do it. And don't call and pretend to be your student. I've had that happen too. It was oh, really awesome. No, don't do that. Yes. <laughs> Definitely don't do that. Um, don't this do that. Is, this is the place for your child to lead the charge. And I realize it's challenging and they're in school when um, admissions offices are at work, but my experience is you can find a way, you have a free period during the day. All kids have cell phones these days. Um, If you're gonna make the call, you can make it happen. Again, not all schools are going to take a call. So be prepared that they may not be willing to talk to you. Um, I think what I advise my students to do is absolutely follow up. I don't know about monthly. At Penn, that would have been probably over the top for me. I I would say I wanted to hear from them once with a letter, um, not a long letter, just but updating me similarly on on what you've been up to and confirming your continued interest. Um, If you really are, if this is still your top choice and if you are committed to attending, if you are admitted in regular decision, I would say that. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing and I think it could work in your favor. You do, even if you ultimately don't talk to anyone on the phone, um, you do need to follow up. There needs to be some sort of, and the school may provide you with a way to follow up, uh, or, you know, you could do the letter or the email, as Kimberly is suggesting. Whatever you do, you need to do something, because if we, if I opened the file on a deferred applicant to prep for committee and regular decision, and we had had no contact since that deferral, my assumption was this student was had moved on from Penn and was interested in another place. And what I saw year over year was that if we admitted a student who had been deferred and we hadn't had much contact with them or any more to the point, they didn't come. So it felt almost like a wasted, um, a wasted acceptance in that situation. And then the last thing Oh, I was going to make a point. It just flew out of my brain. I'm sure it will occur to me uh, before uh, the end of this call. So let's move on to the next thing, um, which is um, you had some great ideas about what not to do. So uh, what are your thoughts there other than picking up the phone immediately? Right. Other than picking up the phone immediately, we had a lot of students that would ask, can I have an interview? Uh, can I come and visit and sit down and talk to you? Right. So mm-hmm. no, you, you don't want to do that. At this point, the admission office has all of the information that they need. So they don't need you to have an interview. Don't need to fly to that campus to, to show yourself to an admission officer. So Stay away from, from doing any of those things. It's not necessary. Uh, the, the point of contact that Beth and I just mentioned, you know, an, email, an email, a phone call, that's enough. Mm-hmm. Um, don't send additional information. This is not the time to send a new essay. Um, this is not the time to get more recommend, recommendations. This is not the time to add additional information to your application. Like I said, they have what they need. They may ask at some point for updated grades, um, so make sure that you're working with your, your guidance office college counselor to do that, but they know that they have enough information in terms of the application pieces to make that, um, to make that decision yet. We, we sometimes had uh, deferred students kind of show up, and there's, there's not too much we can do um, and not too much we can say at that point, so that's not really going to help your application, and it could hurt. 
Right, exactly. Um, and and that's a really good point, too, about, and, and as you were saying, the whole don't send additional information. If a college, when they defer you, specifically says, please don't call, please don't send us anything, don't do that. So I know we just said call, let them know, but if they have specifically said don't do that, this is not a, well, I know that you said, the college said don't do that, but Beth and Kimberly said we should, so we're going to do that. No, right. you listen right. to the yeah. college. Um, right. And I would say, right, that the places where you might get someone on the phone are typically going to be the, um, the private schools. At a large public school, for example, Michigan, we're picking on them, but I'm not trying mm-hmm. to pick on them, but they have so many applications and often their their staff size may not be quite as big. They're just not, this is not something that they're going to be doing typically. So pay attention to the directions that the college give you. Um, but that actually raises another good question. You mentioned don't write another essay. The fact is you can not and should not be messing with that application at this point. You can't rewrite your main essay. You can't, and unless the school is recommending it, it is a bad idea to suddenly say, well, you know, I applied to this program. I think it's harder to get into. So let me switch my major because uh, I could tell you that if you did that at Penn without being prompted to, that would have been the kiss of death because our guess was that either you were trying to game the system in early or you were trying to game it now that you'd been deferred in in, in early for the regular. So you got to stick with the application that you sent. But if you are honest with yourself and you're realizing that, well, I did kind of throw that application together at the last minute and I only did one draft of that essay or three, two drafts of that essay, or you know, I, I didn't really spend a lot of time putting my application together, this might be a good opportunity for you to take a long, hard look at it and say, is this really my best work? If you have already put a lot of time and energy into that application, then please, I beg of you, don't suddenly decide that you need to throw everything out because you got deferred for all of your other colleges. But if it doesn't really represent your best effort, now might be a good time to kind of tweak it to see if maybe you could do a couple more drafts of that essay. Did you really put your your activities in the correct order for maximum impact? Those kinds of things. So it isn't a bad idea to take a look at your application if you really put it together at the last minute. If it was already super right. thoughtful, I wouldn't mess with it. Right, and and that's and and when you're doing that, we're thinking of we're talking about the applications that you are yet have yet to send out. Right, so I really like having some early applications out there because these decisions do come back in most of the time, um, at least early decision ones, come back in time for you to have a little chance to reevaluate before you send in those regular decision applications. So I like to be able to have that opportunity to say, okay, this maybe didn't go quite as I had expected. What can I do uh, Mm -hmm. to make sure that the regular decision round uh, goes a little bit more in my favor? And I also think if you put a great amount of effort into these early applications, it does come down to a, like, like Beth, you worked at Penn. I mean, you weren't taking a lot of applicants to begin with. So that's that, you know, if you did the best you could do on your application, you feel really good about it. That's the best that you can do. And and you've applied to a school that's super selective and that's, that's, that's what it means, right? And, but exactly. You start to think about your next applications and where you might send those in as well. Right. Might reevaluate that list a little bit. 
Right. And actually, I think that Ian and Tova in the show last week dug into yeah. that a little bit more. So for our listeners who are curious to to get that perspective, I would strongly recommend going back to um, listen to last week's show. Um, last note quickly that I wanted to make um, was just I thought of the thing that I was trying to remember earlier, and that is when you want to send that letter. Um, I The other thing that I used to see is that when the letter was sent to me um, from a deferred student, as what I would call a knee-jerk reaction. So if I received it within a few days of the decision going out, um, those students, if they if they ultimately were admitted, didn't always come. And what I started to recognize was that a lot of times the letter that's sent immediately is really more of a, oh my goodness, they didn't take me and I really want them because they didn't take me, rather than a thoughtful response of, mm-hmm. okay, I didn't get in. I thought I I wanted to. Is this really still what I want? And so I really encourage students to get that letter in at some point towards the end of January um, because it would be there in time before we went back to committee, which often started somewhere in February, sometime in February. Um, But was there so was there in enough time to be considered? But also allowed enough time for the student to be thoughtful about, is this still really what I want? And quite honestly, maybe to have some new things to say, because, right. you know, you only submitted your application on November 1st, and you may not have much that's new at this point. So that's my right. last piece of advice. Kimberly, anything else that you would add before we uh, go to break? No, I don't think so. Good luck, everyone. Thank you so much, Kimberly. And yes, I would echo that. Good luck to all of you, uh, whether it was a deny, a defer, or an accept. Uh, The fact is you are going to college and maybe it's to what you think is your top choice and maybe it is to what you thought was your top choice yesterday and you'll have something new to focus on tomorrow. Um, When we come back, we're going to be answering your questions. So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. 
Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to one of my favorite segments of the show, which is when we answer your questions. It is so excellent to get your feedback and your questions because it means that you're really out there listening to us and we really appreciate that. If you're thinking, hey, I have questions and I have no idea where to send them, uh, send them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Again, it's gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Also, you could submit them to us on Facebook uh, and you could just let them know, hey, this is a question I would love to have answered on the radio show, on the podcast. Um, And if you're not following us on Facebook, why not? You should be. Uh, so we're going to we're going to be answering your questions on issues related to admissions. That's me and finance, which we all know, especially if you've been listening to the show, is not me. Um, and today I'm excited to welcome my colleague, who's also a former financial aid officer for the Rochester Institute of Technology and Northwest College, among a few others, um, Tara Piantonita Kelly. Hi, Tara. Hi, Beth. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, we're excited to have you here and. Um, I am going to jump right into the first question I have for you. Uh, Okay. So this one comes to us uh, from a listener who asks, my husband and I are older parents, so we don't meet many folks in our situation. Our daughter is a rising junior, class of 2020, and my husband will be 71 when she graduates, and I will be 60. Several financial questions. Um... Are HSA accounts omitted from the FAFSA similar to retirement assets? Uh, Are retirement account withdrawals and Social Security benefits considered income on the FAFSA? Um, Why don't we start with those two, and then there are two more after those. Um, But to give you a chance to answer, let's start with those two. Okay, we'll start with the HSA account. So uh, just in case no one knows what that is, that's a health savings account. It's sort of like, it's not the flexible spending account. So it's not an FSA, it's an HSA, and they're, and they're different. So um, an HSA is an, is an you, you put money into it uh, pre-tax, and you, um, it, it grows, and you, know, you do investments with it. And then when you pull it out, it's used for, for health savings. But it's different from the flexible savings account, So just so you know. So um, are HSA accounts omitted from the FAFSA, similar to retirement accounts? The answer is yes. And no. <laughs> so the account balance in your HSA is not considered an asset on the FAFSA. So that is omitted, just like a retirement account. But any money that you pull out of the, that account on a pre-tax basis is considered untaxed income for that year. 
Okay, so it's not an asset, but any money you pull out during that tax year is considered untaxed income for the FAFSA. Okay, so that's the HSA, not the FSA, the HSA. Okay, um, are retirement account withdrawals and Social Security benefits considered income on the FAFSA? And again, the answer is it sort of depends. <laughs> so, um, any any retirement accounts, uh, if you get a distribution from a retirement account, that is considered um, income on the FAFSA. So, if it's a, a taxable distribution, then it's listed on your taxes as income, and that becomes part of your adjusted gross income, and you pay taxes on it. If it's not a taxable distribution, then those are listed as untaxed income on the FAFSA. So, retirement withdrawals definitely show as income, either taxable or untaxable. Now, for Social Security income, that it, it, it depends. So if your Social Security income is untaxed, then it's not considered income, either taxable or untaxable on the FAFSA. But if your Social Security income is taxed, then that is considered income on the FAFSA. So lots of questions that end in it depends. <laughs> sure. What what and and this may not be the place for it. And please feel free to say. But why would are some people's Social Security benefits taxed and others are not? That doesn't. That's sort of um, interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. So and I had to actually look this up on on the IRS website for that exact reason. Well, when is it not? Um, and there mm-hmm. are some income guidelines. So if if Social Security, your Social Security, Social Social Security retirement income is your only form of income, and it and it doesn't go over a certain amount, then it's probably not taxable. However, if Social Security is only a portion of your income, you have other income as well, then it may be taxable. And then there are some forms of Social Security, like um, you know, Social Security disability or Social Security survivor benefits, that are not taxable. Got it. Okay. That's very helpful. Thank you. All right. Two more parts to this question from this listener. Um, The next question is, I fear colleges will look at our financial situation and expect us to use savings towards college. And I know we should contribute some, but how much? Whatever we have in savings when our daughter graduates will be it. Minimal opportunity to save more given our ages. That's question one or three. Uh, And then the last one, the last one is we've got some special circumstances, fluctuating income and medical expenses. When and how do we communicate all of this to a college? Now, these are some really great questions. So I'm glad we're able to to handle these um, because lots of people kind of might fall into this category. So, um, and just to let you know that we are putting together a uh, radio segment specifically on financial aid for uh, older parents. So we'll be doing a whole segment on that. But um, for this information, let's let's I'll just tackle these questions right now. So savings for uh, savings. What? How much is, are they going to expect? Um, so the the FAFSA does ask the parent what their assets are. It, it of course excludes retirement savings and any equity in the primary residence. Um, but then it takes a look at everything else and it calculates the value of all the parents' assets, but then it applies something called an asset protection allowance, and that is an amount that is based on the age of the older parent. So younger parents have a lower lower asset protection amount, so you know more of their asset value goes into the calculation, whereas older parents have a higher protection allowance, so less of their assets go into the calculation. So I'll just to give you like a for instance, the asset protection allowance for a parent who is 40 is one uh, 17,700. So the first 17,700 of their assets are excluded from the calculation altogether. Whereas if a parent is 65 or older, 
the first $33,600 of their assets are excluded from the calculations. So, you know, if you want to know exactly how much of your assets are going to be used in calculating the daughter's expected family contribution, there's, what you can do is just go run an expected family ca- contribution calculator. There's one on the College Board's website. It'll only take you a few minutes. But go ahead and run the calculator, answering it correctly for every question, income and assets and calculate to see what the expected family contribution would be. And then back up and delete your asset information and run the calculator again to see what her EFC would be as if you had no assets. And then you'll be able to see, oh, okay, well, maybe it doesn't, you know, it's not such a big deal that we have these assets because it doesn't impact her expected family contribution that much. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Works. It does make yeah. sense to me. All right. Do you remember okay. the last one? Or do you need um, me to? Oh, yeah. Nope, I got it. Uh, special okay. circumstances, fluctuating income, medical expenses, um, how and when do we communicate that? So, um, you know, college financial aid offices, you know, they're, they're used to seeing those kinds of requests. I would see these every year when I was a financial aid director. So um, each college that your daughter applies to, what I would recommend is going onto the financial aid office portion of the school's website and just do a search for things like, you know, special circumstances, or sometimes they call it a, you know, financial aid review or something along those lines. Because... Some schools have forms that they want a family to complete, you know, when they have special circumstances like this. Um, other schools may not have a form. They might just want you to send an email telling what the situation is. And so, you know, when can you do this? Well, you can do it either before uh, your daughter is accepted or after she's accepted. But if you do it before she's accepted, the financial aid office is probably not going to do anything with that until and unless your daughter has been accepted. They're not going to work on it, you know, if the student you know, isn't going to be accepted. Um, sure. So let's say you, you've given all this information. Um, the financial aid office will probably reach back out to you and ask for some documentation to corroborate uh, the information in your request. So if you're saying we have higher than normal medical expenses, they're going to want to see those medical bills. Or if you say, you know, we have uh, fluctuating income, um, they might want to see, you know, previous tax returns to, to show that. Um, so, so check with the colleges to see, you know, how they want you to get that information to them. Um, and then whatever it is that their, you know, procedure is, just make sure you follow that. All right. Awesome. Uh, I think some really great answers to those questions. And as you mentioned, we are going to do a segment on um, this whole process for older parents who likely have similar concerns. So uh, we will let you know when that one's coming. All right. You have a question for me. I do. And this one came through our website uh, this fall earlier. Um, The listener says, uh, my daughter created and regularly posts to a blog about her hiking and outdoor adventures. Her posts are thoughtful and well-written, like many essays. What's the best way to represent this on college applications? And do number of views or followers or whether her blog has been reposted or maybe featured on other blogs or social media pages, does that matter? And if so, you know, how does she communicate those statistics? Okay, great questions. Um, I think the first thing that I would say is that it's awesome if she is um, – regularly posting to this blog. Uh, One challenge with communicating that to a college is if a student started a blog and then they regularly posted for a while and then they stopped. Um, If you are going to share with a college that you have this blog, it needs to be up to date. It needs to be regularly updated. Um, You want it to be an active blog. So that's 
piece of advice number one. Number two is that um, there are some colleges that will actually allow you to submit a URL for something uh, that um, you think is valuable for them to know about. So you might want to uh, make sure to post it there to make sure you put the URL there. Uh, of course, she should mention this in her the activity section um, you know, the common app activity section comes to mind immediately, but, um, you know, in general, that's a good place to put that. I do think that statistics can be important and helpful if they're good statistics. So I would say that in this day and age of everybody and their brother being able to have a podcast or have a blog or, you know, something of that nature, for me, I don't think it gets in the, hmm, all right, that's a little compelling until the numbers are in the you know, thousands. And um, the more selective you get, as you might not, as might not surprise you, the more, the bigger those numbers would need to be before they're really going to cause someone to say, wow, that's pretty impressive. Uh, So at the most selective level, uh, you are looking for someone who is a blogger among bloggers. Uh, You know, they are well known. And if you are into this, um, you know, the outdoors and hiking and adventures, Uh, This might be a blogger you've heard of, and that's the kind of thing that's going to create an impression at the most selective level. But again, that is always such a small little group of schools, and just in general, doing something like that, um, even if the statistics aren't overly impressive, um, can still be a really cool thing, especially if it's an interesting read. I would be very... um, uh, I think you need to understand that it's unlikely that the admissions officer is going to dig too deeply into the blog um, based on how many applications they have to read and how many students they're trying to get through. But you never know, your reader might have a free minute that day and be looking to read about something other than why this person wants to go to the college or uh, you know their first driving lesson or something that maybe you've read a thousand times in an essay. Um, so you might catch them on a good day where they're going to dig into it a little bit more deeply. Um, some we're going to just take a cursory look and the cursory glance, that is where it's important that the blog be pretty updated and, and look like something really active. Um, the other piece of advice that I have, we did a segment earlier in the fall around um, social media and college applications. And my guest was talking about how you might have something that's more carefully curated that you are inviting the admissions officers in to see. And that LinkedIn is a really good place for that. And so what your daughter might want to do is create a profile on LinkedIn that links to her blog and sort of establishes her presence as, um, uh, uh, I don't know, expert is perhaps the wrong word, but sort of, you know, someone who's really, um, engaged and involved in this world, and it could highlight all the things that she does in that area, including, as I mentioned, the blog. Uh, and then you could link to her LinkedIn profile on the application. Um, but another place to add those statistics would be in the additional information section. Almost every application has that. Uh, and it's designed exactly for stuff like this, where there isn't an obvious place to include that information, um, but you really like to share it. That goes in the additional information section on the application. Uh, Okay, we're going to actually take a break right now and uh, go to a commercial. And then when we come back, we're going to answer more of your questions. So don't go away.
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My favorite coffee story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are answering your questions, and we're going to get right back to it. Um, My colleague, Tara Piantanita Kelly, is here, and she is our college finance expert for the day. And Tara, I have a question for you. Comes to us from Richard who asks or says, my child is applying to 15 schools. Richard, I'm here to tell you that's probably too many schools, but you're not asking that. So um, I'm offering that as free (laughs) advice. Um, The FAFSA only has room for 10. They might be trying to tell you something. Uh, How do I make sure the other (laughs) schools get the information? There's the question. So how do you get the information that you're trying to convey on the FAFSA if there are only room for 10 schools, but your daughter is applying to 15? Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. We get this question all the time. It's a good one. So uh, there's only 10 places for schools on the FAFSA. So what you do is you put your first 10 schools on your FAFSA, you sign and submit your FAFSA, then you wait 72 hours to make sure that the FAFSA has been processed. There's no problems with it. And then go back 
into your FAFSA, delete five of the schools and put five new schools in and then resubmit it. Uh, so now all 15 schools will have your FAFSA data. And just, just so you know, because we get this comment a lot, you know, as soon as your FAFSA is processed, those schools have your information. And deleting a school from your FAFSA doesn't delete the FAFSA information at that school. So once they have your information, they have it. So don't worry about deleting a school. They, your, that school already has your FAFSA information. Right. And I just to highlight that key piece of information, which is you suggested waiting 72 hours before you do that. So um, for those families who are uh, parent, you know, where you're a junior or younger, um, you want to allow enough time to hit deadlines if you're going to be applying to more than 10 schools uh, so that you can submit that wait 72 hours, then go back and delete the two and add two more, however many you're going to apply to. So um, that's really valuable information. Okay. You have another question for me. I do. I do. And this one comes from Bailey. She says, um, if I'm accepted ED, how do I go about with uh, about withdrawing my application from other colleges and, and what's the best way to do this? Uh, so great question. And if you are accepted ED, one of the agreements is that you will withdraw all of your other applications and you will deposit at that school. That's the commitment you made. Um, some schools are going to make it easy for you to withdraw. Uh, if they have a portal, there may be a place to do it right on the portal. Uh, colleges do understand that sometimes you've made other commitments and that might mean that you'll withdraw your application prior to them making a decision on it. So the first thing I would do is go to the portals of any of the schools you've applied to to see if that is an option. Um, if it's not an option, then you probably are going to want to send an email to your admissions officer or to the admissions office. Uh, if you're not sure what the email address is or exactly who it should go to, you may have to call the school to ask or at the very least visit their website to see if they are have any information about how to withdraw your application. In probably no surprise to anybody, it's not always made super clear because colleges don't always want you to withdraw your applications. Um, although I don't think it's a nefarious plot. I think they just, when you're thinking about things you need on your website, I don't think you're thinking about how do we, we should be letting kids know how to withdraw their applications. It's not really top of mind. Um, one piece of advice that I would have, and it does kind of build on something that Kimberly and I talked about in our first segment, and that is... I think you, of course, need to submit your applications to the schools that have rolling deadlines or priority deadlines uh, and make sure you're getting the schools, the applications in if there is an earlier program and whatever early decision program that you're doing doesn't prevent you from doing those. There are some early programs where they will say we don't apply anywhere else early decision, in which case... If you're applying ED, you don't apply to that school in their early round. Um, but there's more than one reason to not submit those other applications. You want to get them done. But don't press submit on regular decision until you get your early decision, um, assuming you have time before the regular decision deadline. First of all, you avoid paying the application fee. And second of all, you avoid having to withdraw your application from multiple places. Maybe you only have to do three withdrawals rather than eight so um, I will just put that plug in for that. All right, Tara, uh, yes. another question for you. And this one comes from Beth, not me, a different Beth. Okay. I would, okay. I would prefer if my student does not have to borrow, are there loans that we can take out as parents? Uh, the answer is yes, there are loans that parents can borrow for their students' educational costs. 
Uh, there's one on the federal loan program, just like students can borrow on the you know, federal loan program. There's a federal parent loan as well called the Federal PLUS loan, and parents can borrow that. Um, there are also private educational loans that parents can borrow as, as well. So um, both require a credit, a credit check, um, but the Federal PLUS loan only looks they're only looking for what they're, what they call adverse credit history. As long as the parent doesn't have that adverse credit history, the parent can borrow essentially as much as they need to up to the total cost of attendance minus financial aid, uh, every year. Private educational loans, absolutely just a regular full on credit check and the rates and terms, um, are based on the, the parental credit. But yes, absolutely. You don't have your, if you don't want your student to borrow loans and you want to borrow loans, there, you should have those opportunities. Yes. Okay. Great. What do you have for me? Yeah, I have a couple of good ones. This one's kind of like a combo one. So see what you think about this one. It says um, it's, it's about um, changing majors or dropping a class. So it says, um, I've changed my mind on majors. Can I switch to business now that I've been accepted? Or um, do I have to tell a college that I dropped a class after they admitted me um, with the class on my transcript? So how, does, how would that work out? So let me go with the second question first. Um, do I have to tell a college? Uh, I would position that as, do I have to ask a college if I can drop a class if they admitted me with that class on the transcript? So A, yes, you definitely have to tell the college. And in fact, you really should be asking and not just doing because colleges do reserve the right to change their decision, to revoke their acceptance. If there are fundamental changes to the application um, or, you know, if the student is doing terribly in the second half of the year after having a great first half of the year, um, this is never set in stone. So you should be proceeding with the plan that you listed in the application. I am really not a fan of making changes to that plan after a school has accepted you. Um, And I tell my students that they shouldn't do it. And then if if they are adamant, I tell them that they need to call the college and get permission to do it before they do that. So, John, my advice to you is proceed with caution because um, that is not something that you uh, want to do without m- putting a lot of thought and um, time into figuring out if that's okay. And the other question was around changing your mind on majors and you get in, you've gotten in and now you want to switch your major. Um, and the answer there is really that it depends. Um, at some, although not all, at some schools, business can be a slightly more ex- uh, difficult major to be accepted to. Um, at other schools, it could be a slightly easier major to be accepted to. Either way, it's never really a great thing to have a student who is who has selected a major suddenly change their mind and now want to do a different major because what it often smacks of is, well, I didn't think I could get into the major I really wanted. So I've gone ahead and applied to a different major. Um, and I think, again, it depends on the selectivity of the school and whether or not they're going to allow it. Um, I can think of one time in all of my time at Penn where someone was admitted in early uh, to one program and one school who then asked to switch to a different school and we allowed it. Um, There was a very lengthy conversation and explanation and I think the student even wrote something up and ultimately we decided that it felt uh, authentic and that we would do that. Otherwise, the message is you have to spend your first year in the program you selected and that we've admitted you to. And then at that point, you can apply to be accepted to the other program uh, if that's still what you want. So 
This goes back to being really thoughtful when you submit your application and trying really hard to decide, is this the right thing? Is this the path I want? And also being authentic and not trying to game the system. If you are applying to a different major than the one you want, just because you think it'll be easier to get in, well, for starters, you may look like someone who isn't very focused and people will say, well, this doesn't make sense to me. This student seems very interested in X and yet has selected Y. Um, but then also, what good does it do you to get into a particular school if you don't get the program that you want? I mean, the entire point of going to college is to continue on your path that you have for yourself. And for some students, they may have no idea what that path is. But for other students who are very focused, um, you want the school that's going to give you that path. And you're really taking a major leap if Um, you're not applying to the path and the school has it. There are no guarantees that you will be allowed to follow that path once you get there. Um, And certainly no guarantees that they're going to let you change. So the first thing, of course, that you need to do is pick up the phone and have a conversation because there are plenty of schools um, and admissions officers who might be listening and saying, well, at our school, that's no big deal at all. And we would want students just to call and tell us. So again, uh, it's going to depend on, and it depends largely on the school. All right, I think we have time uh, Tara, for at least one more for you. And this uh, question comes to us from Nick, um, who asks, can I remove or lower an asset value I reported on the FAFSA? I have money earmarked for a home purchase and don't want it included in the EFC. Well, that would ah, be nice okay. if you could just decide. Right, <laughs> right, right. I, you know, I don't, I don't want, I want to exclude this asset. Okay. So I'm just not going to tell you about it. Yeah, no. <laughs> no. <So the laughs> exactly. Probably not. So um, the, the FAFSA is looking at a snapshot of your assets as of the day you submit the form. Um, and now then they say there's, there's something called updating and there's something called correcting. So you're not allowed to update asset information on your FAFSA if when you answered it, it was correct when you submitted it. Okay, so if it was initially correct, you're not allowed to, to update it. But if you originally answered the question incorrectly, let's say, you, you know, you have you you have ten thousand dollars in savings, uh, but you 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 said you have ten thousand, but you actually only have one thousand. That's a mistake. So you are allowed to go back and correct the incorrect number. So uh, if you have money earmarked for something, then answer the FAFSA question exactly as it as it asks. Include that asset information, and then go to the school's financial aid office and and see if they will either discount or disregard that asset because it's earmarked for a special purpose. You know, in in some situations, yeah, okay, I can that might work at at some schools. Like, and and the house example is exactly the one I've had. I had a family come to me saying, you know, we're we're uh, we just sold our house. We have a lump sum in our savings because we're using it to to purchase our house. We're in escrow. You know, once it's in the house, since it's our primary residence, it's not include it's not included as an asset. So, you know, is that something you'll take into consideration? So, on a case by case basis, the school might do that. Sure. Got it. Okay. So I think that's a great, uh, great response. And I, I think that the last part of your answer there highlights an important thing, which is that while you may not be able to remove it from the FAFSA, you can certainly follow up once the student has been admitted uh, and let the um, financial aid offices know about some changes or exactly that what you were just describing where the money's there. It's an escrow, though, because you're, you've just purchased a new primary residence and that money's going to go to that. Um, the importance of kind of following up and, 
not necessarily so much negotiating as just letting schools know about new and special circumstances that have arisen since submitting the information. Um, Tara, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Lovely talking with you. All right. Uh, Thanks to Kimberly, too, for joining us for the first segment and to all of our listeners for listening in. Next week, Sally is hosting, and uh, she's going to be talking about co-op programs, uh, including the financial aspects of a co-op program. And also, uh, in office hours, we're going to be talking through the supplements for Washington University in St. Louis and Barnard College in New York City. Uh, I mentioned it earlier, but if you have questions for us, send them, gettingin.voiceamerica.gmail.com or submit them to us on our Facebook site. And if you're not following us on Facebook, you should be. Uh, We have a great blog, blog blog.getintocollege.com. So you want to check that out. Uh, And don't forget, we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.